The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Welcome back. This egg, tell me where they took it. It's the key to all this, isn't it? Making the darkness go away, controlling the dome. You want to know a secret? You may think that you're some kind of god to these people. I think we both know what you really are. What's that? Criminal? Worse. A politician. London. It's Thursday, September 26, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Al Gretzky. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Boy, talk about cynicism. Worse than a criminal. <laughs> the politician. A politician, yeah. yes. When I heard that one, I thought, my goodness, that is definitely something that is going to appear on Just Right. Good pick there, Al. <laughs> and good morning to everyone, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to reach us on our conversation today, or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Later on in the show today, um, you know, speaking of that po- po- uh, political cynicism that we just heard expressed. <laughs> I often wonder if our politicians have earned that cynicism. I'm going to be looking at that a little bit in the latter half of the show, and I'll also be talking about uh, uh, this phenomenon from the perspective of the the recent Ontario Progressive Conservative uh, Convention held here in London this past weekend, and through the political maneuverings on both sides of the uh, right to work. Uh, legislation debate. So we're going to be looking at that in the second half of the show. And Al, I know in the first half you want to continue on with your uh, theme that you started a couple of weeks on uh, ago on the show, sort of what I've typified as all the news that apparently was not, not fit, fit to print. And, and indeed, uh, <laughs> yeah. not, not fit to print yeah. either because of the fact that somebody didn't want it printed or uh, thought maybe that other people couldn't handle that information. Uh, uh, so I understand you're going to take a look at the Egypt and Syria situation that, this morning. That's correct. Uh, what, I, uh, what I want to do today is to move from a more personal um, problem uh, as it, we had last week. Uh, we had um, the lack of disclosure where someone might uh, benefit financially, and then we had a lack of disclosure where an individual made a wrong choice. So we'll move from that individual theme to a sort of more worldly, world stage. Yeah, that wasn't that, last week, that was three weeks ago. Uh, three weeks yeah. ago, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, the world travels very quickly yeah. when, when, when you get to my age. You're telling me. Uh, <laughs> I must be getting there. <laughs> so, so anyhow, so, so this lack of disclosure does not just affect individuals. Uh, it can affect uh, the world stage. And uh, so, uh, as I say, Will, the first topic I'll tackle here will be the, um, the Egypt and uh, this is uh, because of a editorial that I read called The Day the Revolution Died. And what was interesting in this editorial is that 
the writer herself lets you know that uh, she is going to leave out major uh, major events. Uh, and I'll quote, I will not attempt to highlight all major events since 2011 as they are too many to recount in one editorial. Uh, I will, however, shed light on current events. Well, that that might sound like a reasonable thing to do. And then she proceeds to build a one-sided case because of what she leads out. Ah, so um, it's not that reasonable. That, that's not that reasonable. No, the, yeah, that's the writer, not reasonable. You only right, have so yeah, much sure, time. Yeah, That's our but, problem here today. Yeah, the writer jumps directly from uh, President Mercy being elected, uh, democratically elected, and he was, uh, to his supporters being killed in the street. And uh, her premise was, uh, in, in the article, that the uh, ousted president was elected democratically, and then apparently the army came in and removed him for no reason, thus killing the democratic wishes of the people. Well, here's just some of the information she happened to leave out in that little scenario, and, and it changes your whole outlook on what is going on. Now, six months after winning the uh, election... The president, with the blessing of his party, the Muslim Brotherhood, declared that for the good of Egypt, as all politicians would or want to do, he is going to take absolute and full control of the country, and that any law or order that he has passed would not be subject to review. And to make sure that that came about, he crippled an already fragile court system. Now, I can't see that happening in any other country. Can you, Mom? <laughs> oh, gee, I wonder where. <laughs> <laughs> now, so Egyptians, on learning that their newfound uh, democratic rights have been taken away in the dead of night, so to speak, uh, they began to gather and protest. And having taken control, much as a dictator would, uh, Mercy then did the only thing that he knew. He ordered his auxiliary in the Muslim Brotherhood to put an end to it, uh, which they did by starting to kill peaceful protesters. At which point, the army asked him to desist, to desist from doing that. Uh, he refused and kept beating and killing, and the army finally stepped in to protect his people. So... Uh, that's just the little pieces that were left out in that article mm -hmm. of um, of moving from a democratically elected president to being uh, ousted by the army. It's interesting you say that. I, I just have in my hands here an interesting, I don't know if you're, you're going to talk about this, Harry Wilkinson's little letter to the editor he had there in the free press just a week or so ago. And he points out how Mercy, upon election, embarked upon a program of setting up an oligarchy, yes. not a democracy, canceling a secular constitution, dismissing the judiciary, and attempting to replace secular law by Sharia law. And he notes these are not characteristics of a democratic government. Mercy did not have a mandate to do this, even though he received the largest number of votes. Kind of a very concise uh, appraisal of that situation. Uh, right, and, and, and I was reading yesterday, somebody sent me an email uh, with a um, with a link to the Daily Star, Lebanon News. And I, 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 I had a cap, cap, uh, captured a, a line here. There's two of them, actually. Uh, how convoluted you can get when you write something to try and hide what it is that you're actually saying. Uh, this was the line from the Lebanon News. 
the writer said, they totally mismanaged their incumbency, bulldozing an infantile and insulting constitution through a totally non-credible ratification process that only exposed their dark pension to grab power by any means. And I'm reading that and thinking, would you like to break that down in English, please? Um, I mean, basically speaking, even the Lebanon news from the Middle East is basically saying that's what he did. He just he just basically grabbed power. And in over a, a year in power, the Muslim uh, Brotherhood showed its total incompetence, which eroded its legitimacy. And again, I'm quoting this paper. Consequently, tens of millions of Egyptians rallied uh, against it in recent months and ultimately removed it from office with the direct intervention of the armed forces. And that leads me to my second point on this, which is something which I do not understand at all. Okay. I, I can understand the individual wanting to post this letter because they would have a, a personal view on this, a personal opinion. They, they would like the Muslim Brotherhood and, and the president that was in. So they would leave out this information. But what's confusing me is that the world press is also following that same line. In other words... The world press itself is following the tack that he was elected and then for some unknown reason he was removed. And they leave out those portions where the Muslim Brotherhood was literally going around and uh, killing people to try and make his point of view. Well, that's one way of persuading people, isn't it? it, it well, it, it is, but, but you, uh. you, you think to yourself, why is it that the press is in on, would want to do this as well? So, one of the possibilities that uh, I, I had come up with, is the reason okay. they're doing it, is that if you recall, when uh, the Egyptian turnover from Mubarak came, this became infectiously known as the Arab Spring. Everybody was on this bandwagon of the Arab Spring. This is finally democracy has come to the Middle East and we are going to see a whole new change. And every major Western organization, almost every, let me qualify that, jumped on that bandwagon and said, well, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened, that we are now bringing democracy to the Middle East. That somehow they considered that simply having an election was all it was going to take to bring democracy somewhere. Well, of course, that's something we've been talking about for a few weeks now, how people misunderstand democracy and its e nature. E express, yeah. yes, yeah, and, and, and that it is and not... The second half of today's show, too, is you're going to see see it domestically how it's still going on, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and for sure that uh, so so they they pushed this idea that all it was going to take was this get rid of this tyrant Mubarak, and that's it. Uh, elect anybody; it didn't matter who we elected, but primarily we wanted to elect the Muslim Brotherhood because. They did portray a very soft, kind side prior to the election. They were the only group who were ready for an election. They had built uh, hospitals, so-called mm -hmm. hospitals, in poor neighborhoods. They provided help for people that didn't have work. They did many 
they had a very good side towards the people that they wanted to to elect them and they had no problem whatsoever becoming the party that was elected yeah, you can always buy the people's votes with benefits. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so once Which they... Which was never meant to right. be part of democracy. <laughs> but and so they saw, they learned that from the West without any problem. This is how you get votes, mm-hmm. which is basically what's done in the West as well. You simply, the guy that offers the most money gets the most votes. Yeah, you know, it used to be it was considered dishonest to pay people to vote for you, but now you use their money <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, to, to yeah. buy your own votes. Yeah, right? so you, you, cir- you circumvent that yeah. by saying, I'm only giving you your money back yeah. yeah and and uh and so that was one of the reasons why they became so popular and got so many votes it's because they did all of this work yeah. uh now that's not to say that they didn't do this work out of the goodness of their hearts i'm i'm not knocking um and i am not trying to come down on one side or the other what i'm all i'm trying to do here is point out the facts of what's left out of these stories and it makes it difficult for people to choose so so back to why the press is doing this and um the world is left with this distorted view of what's going on in egypt because the press is leaving out that information my estimation, and that's all this is, my humble estimation, the mainstream media is leaving this out because to print it and agree with all that information is to say, we got it wrong. We hyped up this situation and we were all wrong. It's kind of like admitting you made a mistake and the world press isn't about to say that we made a mistake instead of doing that they oftentimes do what they do and that's double down literally they will go to any extreme for people not to know what it was they said and what it was they did because this this killing of um uh, of the president's uh, followers um that that was sort of a, a, a that was the second time killings had taken place because the people of Egypt really had already began protesting mercy and the Muslim Brotherhood, and he was already killing them. So my question then becomes, if, if Mubarak was tried for the killing of the protesters to get him out of office, would that not be the same call that the world press should be making with the Muslim Brotherhood? Because they did basically the same thing. Maybe the numbers weren't as high, and but then again, um, there's a line somewhere I read, if you kill one person, you kill the world. Uh, you know, you're, you're raising an interesting dilemma in my mind, too, just in terms of where the media's, for want of a better word, guilt is in this, okay? I wonder if it's so much a, a cover-up and I think there is some of that going up in terms of protecting your own reputation. But I think there's a deeply ingrained, I really mean this, misunderstanding of the nature of democracy itself. And, I mean, we've all been taught it's all about majority vote, majority mm-hmm. rules. The majority has the wisdom, right? Even though history proves that wrong over and over, <laughs> over and again. over again, yes. So... Um, I think that might be more at the root of what appears to be their mischief-making. I don't know. I'd like to think that. 
because that would be an easy fix then you can just straighten it out with yeah. with the simple yeah. um, mm-hmm. here's how it really works explanation but uh, but um, yes it would Do be you an see easy it like that at all or is, is that not the way you see it no not at all okay. I, I see this merely as the Western media trying to cover up the mistakes they finally realized that they pushed so hard they pushed so hard for this to be a democratic election mm-hmm. and a democratic government that at this point now, as I say, they're doubling down. They're, they're not about to admit that mistakes were made. Uh, now, should the army have come in and taken over? I, as I say, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not going to weigh in one way or the other. All I wanted to do was point out that there sure are a lot of missing facts when it comes to people uh, knowing what's going mm-hmm. on. Now, we're going to take a break right now, and on this side of the bumper, uh, we're going to hear something interesting. Here's the first part of our audio bite selection featuring Michael Corrin and Ann Coulter, of all people, during her Canadian tour back in 2010, which, of course, you, Al, had uh, something directly to do with, having been involved with the um, International International Free Press Press Society. And um, Coulter, during her Canadian tour back in 2010, um, only agreed to do two talk shows. And one of them was this show, and the other one was a Michael Corrin show. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and, of course, you and Mary Lou had a lot to do with that, too, as well as, uh, of course, we're the greatest news, news, news <laughs> team going, aren't we? <laughs> and we're modest, too. Yeah. And we'll hear the other half of that selection at the bottom of the hour. But on the other side of the bumper coming up now, too, we'll, we will be hearing Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper speaking about Syria and his views on chemical wa- uh, warfare as recorded on a CBC TV raw feed recorded September 6th. And we'll be back right after this. Welcome back, Michael Corriger. Ann Coulter, an exclusive interview with her while she is in Canada, giving uh, three lectures at Canadian universities. Already there are protests taking place, of course, and that's, that's a good thing. People should be involved. Um, re- refusing to put up posters, not such a good thing, but worst of all, a, a vice president at the University of Ottawa hello, I know you're watching, uh, who sent out a letter before Anne had arrived in Canada warning her not to be too offensive. And it doesn't mean offensive, it means don't say too many things we might object to. That's what it comes down to, saying things that people object to. Not saying things that people object to, saying things that liberals object to. They are people, you know. Because that letter said things that I object to. So uh, we'll see how the Human Rights Commission deals with it, because that's a hate crime according to how he described the hate crime laws in this country. There, there are conservatives, though, who, and I bet in about 15 seconds you're going to make fun of them. There are, <laughs> there are conservatives who say, oh, Ann Coulter, she goes too far. Well, like what? Let's take it issue by issue. Oh, I mentioned what you said about Tiller and, and the killing and of And I him. think I demonstrated that it was a devastating point. What you said about some of the widows after 9-11 also devastating um and by the way do you get fox news up here of course we do oh, we have to pay for it but we don't we do get, get it in it. our hotel room and i'm, I'm cross about that well. too i'm gonna start threatening to roll over and crush canada again no, you, if i don't you, get, you fox get fox news it's one of those digital <laughs> ones you have to actually unlike us one basic cable you have to you have to buy the thing but al jazeera is available as well so it's all okay <laughs> okay sorry you just you just made my head explode again and i forgot what i was talking about Another question on Syria. Obviously, the G8, you were at the table when uh, Russia and uh, President Putin signed on, basically saying they supported a, a transitional government. I mean, which 
leads to believe that another government would come into power, that certainly looks like it was obviously a, a, some sort of empty promise. What, I mean, can you put anything into what Russia says on this file anymore? And, and what do you say to him when they signed on to this, for example, the G8, and yet it's completely, here's a completely empty promise that they're not willing to live up to? Well, as you know, at the G8, uh, we went into the G8, uh, myself and I think some others, uh, extremely skeptical. Um, the Russians agreed to some uh, strong language about transition where we would go. And in the meantime, what we've seen is the Syrian government step up attempts uh, to win the military conflict through the unprecedented use of chemical weapons. So, Prime Minister, in, in Canada's history, we, we have had uh, a painful experience with chemical weapons. And I wonder whether that um, has entered into any of your thinking about that. I'm, I'm obviously talking about Vimy and other locations. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I grew up only a couple blocks away from uh, Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto where, uh, where uh, uh, men uh, continued to live who had been the victims of chemical weapons attacks in the uh, First World War. Uh, terrible stories. I know they're all passed away now, but I can tell you that it was a very real recollection when I was a boy that those kinds of things had happened. But as I pointed out last night, you know, even in the Second World War, even in the war against fascism and Hitler, uh, those forces did not, on the battlefield, resort to chemical weapons. So I really do believe here that uh, we're going to sit back and allow a regime to try and win a military conflict through the use of chemical weapons. We are in new territory. We are in brand new territory that uh, is extremely dangerous and that there will be no turning back from. And uh, you know, as I say, even even the most uh, ferocious despicable and brutal powers for the past 100 years have all stayed away from this kind of warfare. Okay, uh, now the uh, the final example uh, I'm going to take time to get into here of lack of disclosure and what it leads to is such a convoluted mess in the Middle East currently that it, it boggles the mind. And uh, I want to stress right up front that I'm not trying to say that I have an answer or I have a particular opinion or I want to push a particular view. Again, all I'm really trying to say is that I, I merely want people to know that there is information that has just been excluded by virtually everybody. So, uh, that having been said, uh, let me go on. Including that, perhaps Mr. Harper? And including. <laughs> uh, uh, let me begin with, uh, let's begin with the popular current consensus, and then we'll go from there. And that is this. Uh, that it is believed that, uh, that Bashir and the Syrian army carried out chemical weapons attacks on their own people. Uh, this is an action that the uh, President Obama last year drew a line in the sand on and said that if Bashir and his army used chemical weapons, there would be consequences. There was no need for him to actually make that comment. It's one of those brazen things where people sometimes do just to try and puff the chest up. But unfortunately, <laughs> he got called on it. That's what can happen. And that's exactly, that's exactly. He did it, and the U.S., uh, and so when Bashir did it, the U.S. called for action. Now, Obama uh, wanted to make an example of the Syrian government for the use of chemical weapons. Uh, he said that we cannot allow a government to set an example of the use of WMDs and get away with it. I mean, where would that lead, as he put it? 
Uh, that, uh, that has moved the world, pushed by the United States, to first threaten direct action and now with Russia's intervention to talks on destroying the stockpiles of chemicals instead. Now, Obama's main concern was the setting of a precedent that these WMDs had not been used in a long time, and he did not want uh, Bashir to be the first in modern times to get away with it. Why, if Bashir could get away with it, then anyone could. And, as we heard in the opening clip, even Prime Minister Harper touted the line, these chemicals not having been used in almost 100 years, that we are in new territory. Well, that's not exactly the truth. We're not not even remotely close to the truth. That as far as the use of chemicals are concerned in warfare it, uh, yeah. well yes in, in, in yes <laughs> in, in war, yes i know i, I, we, I add them to, we add them to our water every day <laughs> yeah when when i when i was doing uh, research on it they were talking about all of the various things that police and riot squads used currently and that under the pure definition of chemical warfare some of these would fall under the pure definition of chemical warfare of how police and riot crews sure. break up mobs well, that's you know. a good point yeah uh, so so i mean it, so it goes everywhere and and uh, there's that old joke too of course there are chemicals in our water that's why it's safe to drink <laughs> <laughs> so so uh so literally this is not the first time it's been used in 90 years mm-hmm. now what i've done is i've put down uh, six examples there there are others um, number one, it was used in 1935 in the Italy-Ethiopian uh, War. Uh, in World War II, uh, there was a, a minimal use by Japan uh, in their battle with China. Then comes, we go to Vietnam, and there many people say, well, no, no, this isn't a chemical weapon. Well, I'm sorry, Agent Orange, by any definition, is a chemical weapon. As many people here in Canada found out, that uh, we found out that it was tested actually on uh, army personnel yes. on the East Coast, and that was uh, that was a long battle for these individuals who were sick for a very long time. Well, that's what Harper was referring to in his comments, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yes, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can be nasty. Um, <laughs> well, that, I found it interesting that he was both referring to historical references where chemicals were used and saying at the same time we're on new ground we've never this has never happened before it just didn't seem to bother him at all no no well and then we're back to it worse than a criminal politician right (laughs) yeah uh in uh, 1980 uh, 88 iran iraq war i mean thousands of thousands of them were killed um and i missed the 1967 war uh egypt used uh, chemical weapons in the yemen civil war the, the biggest one, however, though, was that in March of 1988, Saddam Hussein outright killed approximately 5,000 villagers in the village of Halabja. Mm-hmm. I pronounced that correctly, I hope. And then for, uh, for these individuals who were not killed immediately, up to 10,000 of them died later. And if you wanted a reason, if the world were truly wanting to enforce their, their chemical weapons ban that they had, that would have been 
well, the cause celeb to uh, for them to go after, because as o- Obama quoted in 2002 said that he said 5,000 deaths in a village in that war is no reason to bring down the, the wrath of the world on Saddam Hussein even though he was and he rhymed off all of the things he now caused, calls uh, Bashir or Bashar and the the world itself didn't do anything about that one. So to say that this is the first time and we have to do something about it is so inaccurate, which means there's something else at play here. That was my first reaction, and we don't know what that is exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we don't know exactly why, but we can certainly show into we can show people how things change. Back in the eighty uh, eight. 80 to 88 Iran-Iraq war and this Saddam killing all these people. One of the reasons that the West didn't do anything was because Saddam was actually fighting a proxy war for the West, Mm -hmm. trying to defeat Iran. And the similarity here is just, it goes beyond coincidental. During that war, when these chemical weapons were used, because the, the the West was backing Saddam, they said that it was the Iranians, the enemy, who were actually doing this, and they refused to condemn Saddam for this travesty, and it was a travesty. Today, the West is backing the Muslim Brotherhood, and all of the, uh, the the bands that are fighting against the Syrian government. So they are saying that it is the Syrian government and the, the, the rebels didn't do that. And yet they actually have video of the rebels themselves discussing this, mm-hmm. saying that, yes, we've done this. Yes, we have those weapons and yes, we use them. So you you... Like I say, I, I'm not trying to sway anybody one way or another, but what I'm trying to point out to people, simply don't take at face value what you read in that paper. If you have very serious issues going on, you need to do a little bit more work because in this particular case, um, it really, this Syrian thing that's going to drive us to the brink of the Third World War has more to do with politics that it has to do with what actually is going on in the Middle oh, East. That's for sure, and I don't think that's a big surprise. I only wish we all knew a little more about it yeah. you know, from from the actual the facts of the situation. Now, um, is that about it for that's for that that's part? it? That's you it know, for me here. You talk about taking things on face value. Well, I'll be leading into this whole conservative um, convention and all that, and you know, conservatives have had a way of imploding <laughs> and arguing amongst themselves. I sometimes think that's a good thing because at least it means there's some kind of ideas going on there and there's a debate going on. But sometimes they take that debate to the wrong forum, if you yes. know what I mean. Yes. And forum really should be uh, internal, not in public, when you want to straighten out your agenda that you have to take to the public. But uh, here's another example of that, but on a lighter scale, I guess. And this is, again, the rest of Ann Col- Coulter's interview with Michael Corrin on uh, March 23rd, 2010, on a 
situation that found her as a quote-unquote conservative in opposition with another conservative on this appropriateness of her comments made with regard to a 9-11 aftermath story about the so-called Jersey girls. You, you, yep. you know that story? Yes, yes. Well, she's going to tell that story now. And when we return on the other side, we'll be getting into the whole um, conservative issue and the right-to-work laws. Okay, so, so on not, Fox not, News, yeah. um, Bill O'Reilly, um, the most popular, um, I would say, cable host, but he's brushing up against, the, he's, he's beating every, yeah, every yeah, cable show. Um, massive, massive ratings. Anyway, when, when Guilty, or rather, uh, Godless came out with the attack on the Jersey Girls, um, which I'll explain in a moment, um, every night of his show, <laughs> he would attack me saying, he was one of those conservatives, he goes too far. Um, and then he, at the end of the week, after bashing me, and I boycotted his show for a week because he was being so mean to me. Um, he took, you know, one of his, his Bill O'Reilly polls for his own viewers. And they're tuning in, presumably because they like him. Did Ann Coulter go too far in attacking the Jersey Girls? And I started running into him around Fox News. I said, hey, you ever going to run the results of those polls? Or this is like one of these South American elections. You wait till you get the result you want before we get to hear the answer. He finally ran them. And something like 90% of his own viewers, after weeks of him bashing me, agreed with me. If you read what I actually said as opposed to what it was said I said, um, I, I think it was a pretty devastating point once again. I mean, the point, it's, it's, it was, um, in a nutshell, the point of my most recent book, Guilty, that liberals use victimhood in order to attack. And they send out these weeping widows, and they were not 9-11 widows. They were four widows, called themselves the Jersey Girls, to go out, cut campaign commercials for John Kerry, to oppose the Iraq War, um, to promote policies that, gosh, a lot of people who were upset about the attack on 9-11 were supporting. Um, and after the, my attack on the Jersey Girls, by the way, my biggest fan base came from other 9-11 widows who couldn't stand these harpies who were going out, A, claiming to speak for all the widows, B, using their victimhood status to prevent anyone from arguing back. Well, I burst that bubble. And, in fact, it, the, the, the reaction to my attack on them using their victimhood status, look, I don't care if... if um, um, if people want to talk about something, um, a personal interest story about how they've been victimized by whatever, crime, the 9-11 attack, whatever. Mm -hmm. But don't use that as a shield to prevent people from arguing with you when what you're doing is making political points. You know, let Katie Couric make that point. Let John Kerry make that point. Let Dennis Kucinich make that point. Don't send out a widow and say, I have to argue with the widow. You're perfectly right. Thank you. As you know, we've brought forward changes um, that we think we should make to labor laws, take them out of the 1940s and bring them into modern realities, including giving union members the ability to opt out of the union if they don't want to. I think it's un-Canadian, it runs against our values to say that you lose your job if you refuse to join the union, and also to have more say about where their dues go. Tim Hudak, Ontario's uh, PC leader, talking about bringing in worker choice. Uh, it's often called right to work in the United States. Now that was uh, Sun TV's Brian Lilly introducing Tim Hudak there on the issue of right to work. And we'll be hearing the, the rest of that proper clip a little later on. But this past weekend, the Ontario PC convention was held here in uh, the city of London. And I've since had a chance to listen to, well, not just one, but several talk shows on various stations. And here what we're obviously 
obviously a lot of conservative insiders and supporters discussing their leader, Tim Hudak, and their party, you know, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. And in so many ways, Al, this is a, such a continuation of our ongoing discussion of democracy and the many ways in which it seems to be misunderstood and confused with voting privileges and simply that. And I actually think it that it was sort of a misdirected effort to be, quote, more democratic that is a consequence of so many of the PC members' discontent with their own party. You know, did you, you ever sense that? Because I know you, you're not a, a provincial PC, but you've, you've, you're it, certainly... Yeah, it was the same. To, it yeah? was exactly the same. And, you know, it's almost like the, the cause is that they want their voice to be heard above the majority almost, which is kind of ironic if you stop to think about it for a minute, <laughs> right? But from top to bottom, it's a demonstration of why the PCs, I think, are slowly and systematically self-imploding. Um, the contradictory phrases, uh, that's a term I like to use, contradictory, Whoa. get it? Use that for over 30 years now. Uh, commentaries like from people like Cheryl Miller, who wants a party leader to display leadership, while at the same time claiming that the party's a democracy and that the grassroots supporters should get to call all the shots. I mean, do you want leadership or do you want followership from your leader, you know? Um, were you going to say something? No, oh, I, I, I was going to agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and there was another PC delegate, I don't know him, but his name Arne Brown. Arne Brown. Yeah, who has put forward one of the key motions to, quote, provide the party with a mechanism to discuss the leadership's performance, uh, end quote. And that totally undermines, I think, in some ways, a concept of a leadership. He almost wants to have a democratic process within the party so as to give the, quote, grassroots a free voice, he says. It's almost like having a recall mechanism inside yeah, well, the party. It, it's almost like posting the question, what have you done for me lately? Well, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> so, you know, I have, to, I have to think, no wonder Tim Hudak and all of the other PC party uh, leaders before him could never really say anything too coherent or consistent. They're, they almost aren't even allowed to lead, given the way a lot of their members and handlers think behind them, right? I imagine they're under a lot of pressure all the time. You can see in his face that, that or even when John Tory was a leader, how, how they seem so restrained yeah, in, in terms and, of what they thought they should say right. versus you know. And having been at many of those uh, those conventions as well, uh, yes, you, you want to, uh, you want to form a base, but unfortunately to form a base you have to have an opinion, mm. and uh, that opinion is your base, and if you don't have that, you don't have a base. Exactly. Now, I can tell you right now, just from my own experience, that any organization that operates on the principles of simple majority rule, where the members get to call all the shots, is kind of doomed to failure in terms of anything that organization may have originally stood for, or could stand for, and I'm talking about principle here, yes, of course. Yes, yes. So... Within the organization, I know that bothers a lot of people, and it sounds like it's anti-democratic, which it is not, but at the organizational level, it's, it's that old adage, it's lead, follow, or get out of the way. You have to pick a position there, one of those yep. three, if, if you're interested in that group's uh, objectives at all. And democracy and voting for a political rec uh, representative is a prerequisite for the political marketplace only, not for the insides of any organization or group. They can do it any way they they want yeah, as yes. far as how they organize themselves and then you hear a guy like john tory who i heard in radio commentaries who's now entertaining even running against um, for toronto mayor rob ford for the position 
you know, conservative against a conservative. Why would he want to do that? Even as he acknowledges that Ford has done a great job at getting the city's finances under control. So it just sounds like an opportunist willing to damage his own brand, whatever that might be, for a shot at political power. And, of course, even though the PC convention was called a policy convention, uh, we in the public didn't hear much mentioned in terms of policy other than some names, like, you know, just words. They didn't really talk about the, the big one, yeah. other than, of course, this whole right-to-work legislation it, thing, it, which created quite a bit of a stir because there was some opposition to it. It was, inter- it was interesting that when they left town, uh, one of the comments that was made by the uh, those who run the party was that they will take the information that was gathered uh, at the convention, but that the actual policies will be made up by people in the back rooms far away from this convention that they really wanted to hear what the people had to say. Mm-hmm. Didn't mean they were going to listen to them. But but there's always you always want a mechanism to hear from people. Like, yes, like even like we do that in, in the Freedom Party. I mean, it's very important that we understand yes. who our supporters are, what they're supporting, what they don't support. But I'm not going to turn the party into a communist party because I end up <laughs> finding <laughs> that communists want to change us. You know what I'm this saying? Is true. You can't yes. you can't be thinking that way. And um, you know, it seems to too that much of the concern about the prospects of the PC party and its leader seem to have been precipitated by the unexpected loss of London West PC candidate Ali Chabar to NDP candidate Peggy Sattler in their recent summer <coughs> by-elections, uh, which apparently was unexpected to, to no one <laughs> except the PCs, it seemed to be. You know, I recall Steve Garrison interviewing Londoners, the Londoners Clay Powell, who, by the way, inter- endorsed you. Yes. As his and I thank him graciously. And when he suggested to Powell that the polls show that Chabar would win the riding, Powell just very calmly replied, no, he won't. <laughs> just like that, right? <laughs> and I know Clay wasn't talking about you, even though he endorsed you. He understood where where the people were, right? No. Nope. And here's these polls coming out, getting it completely wrong. He and Mechanic Ted sat yeah. down and discussed it, right? That's right. Now, of course, for most voters, members of the media, and even politicians themselves, the activity of politics is very much a black and white affair in the sense of win or lose. That's it. And as the old saying goes, unlike bullets and lightning strikes and playing horseshoes, close don't count, <laughs> right? Um, but for those who, you know, if, if you just accept that win-lose viewpoint as a way of looking at politics, I think you're missing the larger picture. In part, I think it's this kind of thinking that misleads both the PC party itself and its renegade supporters into adopting this long-term path to destruction. But at the root of this is the party's real problem, and that is that it really has no philosophy. And that's an issue I want to take a closer look at in the last segment of today's show in conjunction with the right-to-work issue. But if you take a closer look at what's going on in the background, we can get some idea of what future voting patterns might arise. And following the recent by-election, Paul McKeever did quite an amazing analysis of all five writings. I don't have time to do them all. But the um, the strange result is, I guess you could say, everybody won except the loser. In the sense that the liberals were the big losers, and, and as much as you may think all of the other candidates lost, every other candidate in that riding came up in their vote totals. Isn't that interesting? Except for the liberals. 
No, the, I did not know that. The Liberals were the big losers, and Paul did quite a, an analysis, uh, just in London West, for example. He said there were 35,980 ballots cast in this election compared to 49,525 in the election 11. Uh, quite understandable. It was a summer That's election. Not, yeah. A lot of people were gone. There were a lot of other reasons people couldn't get out to vote. So 72%, or 73, close to, of the number of ballots cast were cast in the summer by-election. So Paul did some prorating of how many uh, votes each party got and increased based on that prorated, because uh, you want to work with percentages, not yes. with absolutes. And so basically, after doing all the calculations, the NDP came out with um, an additional 7,243 votes, 92% better than the last time. The PCs actually came out better. 1,500 votes up, 14%, but then didn't win them the, the, the election. The Liberals down 64%. They lost 10,571 votes. The Greens did 81% better, amazing. And Freedom, of course, did... Uh, you took 620 votes there. You, you were up 743% for the Freedom Party in that riding. And you got 5.1% of the ballots in that London West. So basically, with the exception of the Liberals, all parties did better in the 2013 by-election. And um, just uh, reviewing just what we just said, now the main thing is that the PCs were relatively unable to capitalize on the implosion of the Liberals, which suggests, says Paul, that even during a by-election when each party's workforce can be concentrated in only a few ridings, the PCs were, were still unable to improve their standing. And that suggests they had little potential for improving their support in the future in London West. They appear to have been maxed out with their support levels in, in a lot of the ridings across the province. And, uh, of course, the unions either did not come out to help Corrin, or were um, or were able, you know, to convince voters not to vote Liberal and maybe support the NDP. You see the same patterns right across uh, most of the, the five by-elections that we had, and I guess the bottom line is that um, the big wide picture, as Paul says, the PCs are in trouble. The party appears unable to grow. The exception to the rule, Etobicoke Lakeshore, was un due to the fact they had a star candidate there. I guess that might be our issue, too, with you here. You're kind of a star candidate. Why, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the biggest misleading factor we got in that election was the robocalls. And those robopolls, or what, you know what they call, yes, uh, like the one carried out by Forum and Campaign Research, uh, were very mischievous during that election and misled a lot of people. They, were, they weren't even close to being right. I kept checking my yeah. birth certificate, and other <laughs> is not my middle name. That's right. You know, it was just amazing. And then they list the Green Party above you, even though you got more than they <laughs> yes. did. So there you go. And, uh, you know... It's interesting. One thing I had to add to that, you know, all these these factors, there was one issue. I don't know if anybody noticed it, but residents in London West had to go pretty far to go find a polling station. I know in the buildings I live in, I had, we had to go way over to the Christian Gospel Temple to vote. And I know a lot of people, especially the elderly and people who are handicapped and things like that, they weren't going to get over there if they didn't have transportation. So far as I'm concerned, I think the day for online and electronic voting is slowly arriving. Now, the following audio bite feature, uh, features uh, that portion of um, Sun TV's Brian Lillian conversation with the Fraser Institute's Jason Clemens on the subject of right-to-work laws, which was one of the big issues brought up at the PC convention. It's only a very small part of that total interview, which you can see in total on Sun's website online. We'll be back right after this.
Well, the Fraser Institute has done a study on what it would mean to Ontario and British Columbia to bring in right-to-work legislation. Jason Clemens is one of the authors of the study, joins us now from Vancouver. Jason, uh, if we can start by, let's define terms here. When you say right-to-work legislation will give us all those wonderful things, what do you mean by, what would that legislation involve? Sure, so there's two sets of legislation we can look at. Uh, the first one is the national legislation in the United States and it covers the relations between unions, employers, and individual workers. Uh, those laws uh, in the United States, again, covers all 50 states, specifically says that workers cannot be compelled to join a union as a condition of their employment. In other words, if a, if a firm is unionized, uh, you can't ask the individual workers to become members of the union in order to work at the firm. And then secondly, it allows them to opt out of dues that are unrelated to their representation. And that's normally political or social type spending. Okay. What, uh, what right to work laws do then is extend that national law and say that individual workers can opt out of the dues entirely. Ontario and Ohio are the only two jurisdictions in what's called the I-76 corridor, which basically runs from Ontario down to Florida. Uh, that are non-right to work. All the other states in that region which are manufacturing orientated are all right to work. And so Ontario really has two problems right now. One is they in Ohio are standing out as the only non-right to work in the manufacturing hub around the I-76. But secondly, Ontario has much higher unionization rates which again are not particularly driven by worker choice but rather the lack of worker choice when it comes to right. working at a unionized firm. I want to throw out the Ontario Federation of Labour brought out their own rebuttal of you, a rebuttal of sorts. Uh, looking at the list of uh, right-to-work states uh, down the line, they're often low, but not always. Some of them are still high. So uh, overall, though, it's a boost to employment in right-to-work states? Well, absolutely. In fact, the, the best indicator you can look at are people moving from state to state. And when you look at the migration data, it's overwhelming that workers seeking opportunities, seeking a better life, are leaving non-right-to-work states to go where the jobs are. And the jobs are, to put it mildly, in the right-to-work states. Oklahoma, you talk a lot about Oklahoma in your report. They talk a lot about Oklahoma in theirs. They say manufacturing employment uh, increased steadily in the 90s, but has fallen every year since right-to-work laws were adopted in 2001. What, right. How do you respond to that? Sure. So what they're ignoring is that for the last 15 years, we've been in a global restructuring. So even strong manufacturing states uh, have experienced declines in employment because, again, we have a rebalancing. We've had the emergence of Asia as a real powerhouse in low-cost manufacturing. Uh, in addition, and I think this is critical and, and something they certainly miss, is that you can have increasing manufacturing output that is a growing manufacturing sector while your employment is declining. And the reason for that is that you're becoming more productive. Uh, you're investing in capital, you're investing in new machinery and equipment, and so you're able to compete and secure the jobs that you have. And in fact, in many U.S. states, that's exactly what we see, that in fact manufacturing has been solidified, that in fact those companies now are more competitive, even though they have lost employment, they're increasing their output, they're more competitive and able to sustain that employment over the longer term. So again, oh. I, I think the situation in, in Oklahoma is more complicated than the OFL is making it out to be. And that, of course, was uh, Brian Lilly in conversation with a fellow from the Fraser Institute on the so-called right-to-work laws. You know, 
As a floating abstraction, the term right to work suggests some sort of freedom of action that would allow any individual to partake in physical or mental labor that we would call work, right? Uh, assumably on his own behalf or in his self-interest. But when we hear the term used in practice, it's pretty clear that what's being talked about is not work per se, but jobs. And that's a little bit different. Unlike work, which is merely the application of effort to a particular purpose, a job is a relationship between two or more people, essentially the employer and the employee. And when people say they have a right to a job, they're suggesting that they have a right to this kind of relationship. I was listening to uh, Sid Ryan on the other side of this issue talking earlier this week with um, Steve Garrison over at BK, and he brought up the whole idea. He said the origins of the right-to-work legislation came from the Deep South in the 1940s in those particular Republican states, he called, and he, he mentioned, and he talked about how Canada, unlike the states, has a RAND formula. Not to be confused with Ayn Rand, <laughs> but Judge Rand. Um, who, of course, at the Ford Motor Plant in Windsor seven years ago, they came up with the RAND formula, which basically meant that people who weren't members of a union within a union shop still had to pay. Uh, as um, Ryan put it, he says, we don't want any freeloaders on board. And he says, uh, Ryan says, this is him quoted, what Hudak is basically saying is that he would stop this collection of union dues by the employer that anyone in the workforce uh, does not have to join the union, even if the majority voted in favor of it, pulling out the old Democratic argument, and that they would get all of the benefits that the union members get that do negotiate and do pay. So he called it a freeloader's bill. And... He said, Hudak has tried to peddle it as if somehow it can stop union, that, that if you can stop unions collecting union dues, this is a way to create more jobs, says Ryan. And, you know, I would say he's partially correct there, but it's not the collection of dues that's the job creation incentive here. It's the employee and employer's freedom not to be bound by the terms of a third-party union whose interests have often been demonstrated to be hostile to the companies they attach themselves to. And, you know, Ryan actually came out and said Caterpillar was closed because they wanted a 50% decrease in wages and benefits, and the workers said no. So in that sense, I guess you could say he accepted union responsibility for the loss of the jobs. I guess zero, zero pay is better than 50% in, in, in their eyes. And in, and in actual fact, if I can interject, it, it wasn't a 50% pay decrease for all employees. There were specific parts of the union that they wanted the decrease in, and, and many of them maintained pretty much the same that they had. Yeah. And then, of course, Ryan, you know, he cited several studies, without naming any, by the way, to prove that right-to-work laws do not create jobs. And he cited the Oklahoma loss of jobs, which, of course, followed the right-to-work legislation. And he argues people re relocate ge geographically for a multitude of reasons. But I found that he was using the very arguments we just heard from the Fraser Institute to make the exact opposite <laughs> point, <laughs> right? It's, it's got to do with the cost. It's not with proximity to markets. It's about the tax laws, not unions, you know, which brings me around to full circle. Both the conservatives and unions are arguing on non-essentials. Pragmatically, each side is more concerned about whether or not their approach yields the best result, the one, one for its union members, the other for its political fortunes, and hopefully for a few jobs being created. On moral grounds, both sides pretend to defend rights, the one a right not to join a union and the other to a right to join a union. But neither side means what they say. 
Uh, it's more obvious with Ryan, since everybody knows that when he talks about the right to join a union, he means you have to join a union, a union or you'll be a freeloader. But with Hudak, it's a little more tricky when you talk about a right not to do something. Why not just strip the union of its labor monopoly in the first place and avoid the issue of so-called rights you know, not to do something altogether, right? You have freedom instead of rights. Another aspect of the right-to-work laws is they allow workers to opt out of dues that are unrelated to their representation, says the Fraser Institute's J Jason Clemens. But if the concern is with the social and political type of spending of unions, then why not just prohibit unions from spending on those things, right? Uh, that's already a battle going on right now, by the way, under the guise of third-party campaign advertising. And everybody's on board for controlling that. So unions, like political parties, I think, have every justification for be, being able to say that their social and political spending is related to their employee rep representation. After all, hasn't their successful lobbying on the part of the unions caused politicians of all parties to offer no resistance to their labor monopoly? So how can you say that that's not part of what they're getting? Right? Yeah. You really can't. So whether you prohibit a union from raising funds or, or from spending funds, either way, somebody's got to make those determinations and regulate the hell out of them. And I don't see that as working in the long term. Um, you know, it reminds me of the statement uh, Ayn Rand quoted Isabel Patterson as telling her in the 1930s, uh, Isabel Patterson, God of the author of God of the Machine, uh, used to say to me, said Rand, quote, if you hear some bad collectivist notions, chances are they came from the liberals. But if you hear or read something outrageously god-awfully collectivist, you can be sure the author is a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. And if nothing else, I guess right to work uh, is a great distraction from the elephant in the room, our unsustainable health care system something nobody brings up and it's the elephant that's not in the room that the PCs need the most and that's a consistent philosophy to guide them and right now I think the elephant in our room is the clock that says we're out of time for this week so join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction and until then be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right and be right back here, we'll see ya Fade into color color into black and white under the clothes. Everything will be all right. What else have you observed? Well, Earthlings have a custom called voting. It's so everyone can have a voice in democracy. And they all vote? No, only about half of them. The rest have political laryngitis. <laughs> Maybe they just don't like their leaders. I think that's part of the problem. Too bad they don't have someone as well-rounded as you. Is that another fat joke, Mark? Oh, no, your obesity. I mean... We're lucky enough that we have someone like you that we can all stand behind. I mean, all of us, the entire planet. That was a cheap shot, Mork. Oh, rejection, heavy thigh. <laughs> I mean, sigh. See you next week, your acreage. Nano, nano.